episode three, the most belated episode, um, probably of any podcast ever. And if your momentum is still here, I'm very much grateful. This is Tales from Babushka's Bookshelf, the first ever English language Russian literary podcast, and I am back. I'm following up where we left off an entire year ago, and circumstance, chance, whatever you want to call it, the Russians probably call it destiny, has meant that my project has been delayed, and so luckily for you, this endeavour will continue, (laughs) or unluckily, as the case may be, if you've been roped into listening to this. Um... Last time we were talking about uh, Gogol and I told you I wanted to talk more about Pushkin who is truly the most coveted, um, most discussed, most potentially um, kind of nipped in the bud talent that Russian literature has ever really had. Um, he died at the age of 37 in a duel which he really didn't need to fight um, but he did, out of honour and love for his wife. Um, But that's not what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about today is something a little bit different. Um, We're going to talk about two works in conversation with each other around the theme of the Caucasus Mountains. Now, um, this is an interesting topic for me because I'm very much intrigued by the ways that the Russian language has um, invited in its literary canon a discussion of um, the very dark past of Russian imperialism and colonialism. And really what we see in the text by Bushkin and Lermontov is an engagement with what Edward Said has called Orientalism um, and an awareness of this othering impulse that's happening, that's playing out within metropolitan Russian, so that St. Petersburg or Muscovite um, nobility, which formed the majority of the literary practitioners of the day, um, many of whom who had, had fought in the Caucasus in the various very bloody, very um, horrific uh, battles there that were um, trying to quell any kind of dissent and take even more territory from indigenous populations. So what's interesting in um, Russian Romanticism is the way in which arguments that were um, floating around Europe, so in English romanticism, that of Byron or German um, idealism, we, we have a lot of um, exoticized landscapes. We have a lot of mountains, we have a lot of beautiful women who um, bring with them a different kind of aesthetic ideal and a sense of mystery and often um, a different language to the lyrical subject and here we have this too but I would argue that um, both Lermontov and Pushkin are in some ways touching on and avoiding this um, 
notion of Russian imperialism. And instead, both of them are, in fact, using the space of the Caucasus, the architecture, the nature, the communities that they find there, in a, another type of way, and um, specifically as a means of negotiating who they are as literary practitioners first and foremost. Um, when we come out of the 18th century, especially with the uncoupling of literary creation from the court, um, so after someone like Lomonosov, who was very much engaged in developing the ode in Russia and in um, being a courtly poet, there's a sense in which to be a poet of of the Tsars is actually a very fraught and precarious position. And with someone like um, Gavriil Derzhavin, there's really a turn to thinking about not only the professionalization of the author, but also um, a kind of writerly subjectivity or poetic um, subjectivity that is totally outside of um, political arenas and obviously outside of the monarchy's grip. So thinking about that and thinking about the ways in which the ideas of Voltaire and Diderot and Montaigne and all of the kind of French Enlightenment or um, just post-Enlightenment thinkers were dealing with philosophy and um, secularism and questions of morality and the nature of man, um, thinking about Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and uh, all of these debates about um, what it means to be man. Um, we also get a, an insight from Pushkin and Lermontov, not only in what it means to write poetry that's not about the Tsar and not about orthodoxy, um, or not engaging with history in that kind of way, but also thinking about um, man as this tangle of impulses and urges and where does his true nature lie and something approaching a kind of uh, psychological realism in poetry and prose. So let's get going. Let's think about um, these questions and think about too as a kind of framing really where romanticism is at this point um, in Russia. So who has been engaging in romanticism what kind of um, influences have there been and how are these works doing something different whilst showing their knowledge of the types of um, linguistic codes that would have been used in Romanticism. So signalling a debt or an indebtedness to Romanticism but also turning away and crafting something of their own. So um, they enclose... Uh, in their temporal distance, perhaps the most fruitful period of Russian Romantic poetry, with Pushkin's The Prisoner of the Caucasus being written in 1821 and Lermontov's 1840, A Hero of Our Time, um, coming out. Both engaged the Caucasus not merely as an exoticized sub-object of imperial desire, but rather, as I'm going to argue, as a site for the reimagining of individual subjectivity and artistic representation. In turning to the southern lands, the early Pushkin, who had already published Ruslan i Lutmila, was following not only the political trajectory of the Empress Catherine in the 18th century, who had affected the most comprehensive of the Russian Empire's colonising and expansionist programmes, 
But also, he was following other poets such as Lomonosov, Derzhavin, and Kukobeka, who, as Hansharam has discussed, considered the Caucasus primarily as a spatial metonymy of patriotic commitment. With, in the case of Kukobeka, his 1819 poem, Longing for My Motherland, um, there being a description as to his presence being only for the sake of the fatherland and for the Tsar. Someone like Dejavin was thinking through the Caucasus in terms of an earthly instantiation of heavenly natural beauty and a moment of um, wonderment and awe. Pushkin's innovation, however, lies within the highly personal turn that uh, the prisoner of the Caucasus makes in what Ram contends is a potentially narcissistic disposition of his hero, whose venture to the south is justified not by national duty nor ethnographic curiosity, but rather an impulse of escapism. So I'll give you the basic plot. A group of Chakassian men sit and contemplate their latest military victories when suddenly a fellow fighter interrupts the scene to introduce a young Russian man that he's recently captured. The Russian man, as if deadened to any sensorial experience of the present, reminisces on his former life in Russia, acknowledging the irrevocability of the useful joys he discovered there and resigning himself to exile and even to captivity. A Chakassian maiden, in a similar manner to the hero, appears at a moment that the lyrical subject outside of the diegesis presents as unexpected. She notices the captive and begins to take care of him, bringing him wine, kumis, and barley, and showing him affection in spite of them having no common language. Lamenting her passion as an object of exchange amongst the men of her community, she eventually confesses her love to the Russian and desire for him to touch her. He rejects her, claiming that he's disillusioned with love and passion and wishing that their paths had crossed earlier. Grief-stricken, she nevertheless aids him in finding freedom from his captivity. He invites her to escape with him, but for her, as for his earlier self, the fleeting experience of love is now unrepeatable. He crosses a body of water to which she directs him for safe passage, but looks back to see that she has drowned herself. This tragic plot is bookended by an intimate dedication to Rayevsky, whose friendship is described by the poetic subject as a sustaining force and also by an epilogue. In the dedication, the poetic subject invites Rayevsky to recognise in the ensuing text allusions to their companionship within the sweltering yet creatively productive landscape of the Caucasus, acknowledging the divergence of their respective onward paths with Rayevsky beloved in his homeland and the poetic subject, by implication Pushkin, but not definitively reducible to him, the victim of slanders and slights. Ram reads this dedication as well as the epilogue and address both to the poetic muse, a double of Catherine who leads not troops but the imagination southward, and to the vanquished tribes of the Caucasus as showing a rhetorical mastery over this region, thus affecting a reversal of the hierarchy of the main plot where the Russian is subjugated in captivity. Such a reversal, however, can be seen less as a conclusion and more as offering a plurality of vantage points. Rather than an assurance of Russian conquest, the introduction of imperialist military panegyric discourse after the plot of the captive instead shows up the divergence between personal and national destiny, a question that at the meta-literary level reflects on poetic subjectivity in general, with the relative decoupling of literature and the court 
the poet is free to engage histories instead of history with a capital H. Pushkin had read Byron at the Lyceum, and within the Prisoner of the Caucasus, several elements of Byronic Romanticism are present. For example, an Orientalist masculine gaze that eroticizes nature and woman and categorizes local custom as savagery, and in the subject's quest for liberty through exile. Critics contemporary to Pushkin were skeptical of the verisimilitude of the exilic hero in Kavkazki Plenyuk, who emphatically claims to have lost even the possibility of earthly happiness. He says, I am dead to happiness. <clears throat> Since his longing to step onto the Dalniput to Russia is cast in abstract terms with little biographical colour. It might be, however, that Pushkin is objectifying the Oriental romance by framing it with the narrative of the poetic subject, who's no longer in the Caucasus and for whom the Caucasus figure principally in memory, as a cipher for lyric inspiration and the respite of homosociality. Indeed, Ram's discussion of the transience of freedom in Kafkazki Plenik, of its, quote, chimeric temporality, which is destined always to elude the hero of the poem, can be mapped onto the poetic subject's own struggle with his lyric positionality, which is between state and salon, um, salon being the name given to the very um, aristocratic literary circles within which he was mixing. The repetition of vid in the final lines, which is a um, phoneme that means seeing or vision, um, and the second person addressed to the wanderer, the Israel, you saw, foregrounds a single man's vision in a mirroring of poetic practice. Here we might speak of a romantic irony to use a formulation of um, the critic Gary Handwerk. And he defines romantic irony of, um, as the interruption of aesthetic illusion. Following Schlegel, Pushkin's poem draws attention to its own constructedness, thus bending the contours of sincerity and interrogating the relationship between reality and literature, a fraught boundary for which the near-fantastically beautiful and imposing landscapes of the Caucasus provides a corollary. If Pushkin's poem, written in iambic tetrameter, explicitly distinguishes between the diegesis of his text and the frames of dedication and epilogue, Lermontov's novel is more ambiguous in its delineation between narrative planes. Nabokov remarked on the use of polyphony within Giroi Nashvavremini, a hero of our time, as a means of um, bringing the implied reader at turns further away from and closer to the hero Pechorin, a tantalising um, suggestion of the possibility of conversing with our hero. There are indeed multiple narrative subjects within the novel, including the compiler of travel notes who encounters Pechorin, the ageing Maxime Maximich who recounts the story of Biela, and Pechorin himself who writes autobiographically on the stories of Taman, Njajnamiri and Fatalist. At this point, you're probably expecting me to give you a summary of what happens in the text, but that's actually very difficult because it is an um, episodic narrative centering around one very charismatic and gorgeous hero, Bachorin, who, um, despite being very engaging and seductive, 
never quite manages to um, find happiness. Or it might be better to say it's actually never really seeking the kind of domesticized happiness that um, one might expect. With the multiple narrators that we have, um, each of these narrators brings not only his own very idiosyncratic language, but also his own mode of revelation or telling. Pechorin, for example, uses moments that relate to the plot as prompts for elaborations of his life philosophies. And the unnamed travelling narrator intersperses direct speech and reported speech with generalising comments on contemporary society. The compilation of these three narratives, which picture the same main protagonist, Pechorin, invite a comparison from the implied reader as to their respective um, claim on reality, thus subtly engaging a kind of readerly desire at the level of the plot, such that a reader might posit the existence of an actual textual world, which all or none of the narrators succeed in faithfully representing. Nevertheless, before we get to this main body of the text, we have the forward, which in a manner similar to the dedication of A Prisoner of the Caucasus, subverts the later process of revelation of Pechorin's character by showing it to be a fiction, not a cogent portrait of a single man. Instead, it's a portrait that's been compiled from the vices of our whole generation, the genesis of whom has been for the writerly subject an enjoyable task. Um, he uses the Russian adverb vesela. This adverb precludes the endeavour of representing a generation's foibles from being framed as a didactic task. In a gesture that Gogol will repeat in the opening of Xinyang, the overcoat, the narrative subject of the foreword rejects the idea that his hero is formed on the model of a specific person. And in this way, privileges the imaginative practice of literature and thus, like Pushkin, objectifies all of the discourse that follows. To put this in simpler terms, or to make my argument a little bit more um, explicit, is to say that if you have a forward that claims um, really that the poet or the author, even if this poet or author is a fictional one, a kind of mm, mask assumed by the actual historical author, if you have this kind of introduction or framing or epilogue, what it does is that it destabilizes the content of the actual story um, and it really slightly manipulates the implied reader into um, suspending the suspension of uh, disbelief, if that makes sense, or to, to re reintegrating um, disbelief into their reading of a fiction. We already know before we become entangled and mired in this world of Pechorin, wanting to know what kind of a person he is, we already know that he never existed. Um, and this is important, this is an important moment for literature. Even if in a modern time, that might not be um, amazingly innovative. This was innovative, this was very important. Um, this kind of manoeuvre we see in Lamentov's other work, including his poem Son, written a year after the novel in 1841, and also set in the Caucasus, in the hot, close-knit space of Dagestan. 
Dagestan, interestingly, was also the setting for Lermontov's first published poem, Haji Abrek, in 1835. Um, in Son, the intervention of dream, Isnil Somnir, allows the lyrical subject to introduce a suspended fictional world of the beloved. So the poem is essentially about a man who is dying in the heat of Dagestan. Um, he's been stabbed in the chest. He lies motionless, and as he lies, he has this kind of dream or hallucination, and he dreams of a feast with many women who are wearing beautiful flowery crowns, and one girl who is not enjoying the festivities, and instead, she is tortured by a dream or a daydream of some kind of her own, which is that she sees a familiar um, body, dead body, um, expiring with blood. She um, assumes that it's her lover, and the reader is invited to also assume this. However, we have to remember this is only a dream within a dream. And besides, the man that supposedly is dying is the one that is telling us about both of these dreams. And so while she appears to be mirroring her lover by also experiencing a dream, although it is a waking dream, um, in which she sees him at the hour of his death, in fact, the second dream can be read less as a moment of synchronic, kind of early romantic union of lovers, but rather as itself romantically ironic. Through a formal technique of repeated motif, the lyric subject distracts his implied listener from the fact of the entire scene of the woman being a figment of his own imagination prompted by heat stroke. To be sure, um, both Pushkin and Lermitov are seeking to define here, as I said earlier, a specific kind of literary subjectivity. Their questioning of the place of the poet in both his own and in historical time um, is explored in the earliest 19th century poetry, such as Derjavin's The uh, Flow or the River of Time, um, and it emerges from the efforts of 18th century writers to negotiate their own uh, positionality in terms of the court, as we've spoken about. The topoi of early romanticism that we might associate with something like Baitushkov's Vuzdravlenia of 1817, um, such as sensuality, sickness, death, fatalism, the color of red, fire, heat, breath, graves, the suffusion of the human with nature, after readings of Byron are bolstered by notions of the liberty of a lyric subject and the poetic impetus offered by foreign and exotic lands. And so the Caucasus with its rugged landscape, difficult climate, and um, this new kind of vision of the feminine, as well as multiplicity of groups that through imperial conquest are rendered hostile towards Russians, becomes in some way a signifier for romanticism. So it's kind of like a signal or a um, just a really obvious key to romanticism, uh, a stamp, we might say. Um, an image of the other, then, there's very little engagement with the nuances of Caucasian life, be it among Circassians, Dagestanis, Georgians, or Cossacks, um, beyond the sonically harmonious inclusion of certain parts of their colloquial vocabulary, such as aula, kumus, when it kind of suits the authors to use it. 
Um, and instead, Lermontov and Pushkin use the codified romantic imagery of the lonely, disillusioned, but um, mad, bad, and dangerous to know, that's a Byron uh, reference, wanderer, to work out a meta-literary dialectic of freedom and restraint. So that's a kind of tension between freedom and restraint, not at the level of, am I able to just escape everything, do what I want, sleep with women and have no consequences in a highly morally regulated time. <clears throat> no. It's more about um, what can I do with language um, and where are the limits and restraints in language. So in the case of poetry, both are examining the kind of lyrical subject that non-panegyric verse can bear forth. In The Prisoner of the Caucasus, the relatively derivative plotline of the hostage, whose appellation as simply the Russian, quietly makes him perhaps a placeholder for extant Russian literary culture, is mediated by a lyrical subject who considers a different type of exile, um, finding community in poetry, and also offers us a kind of um, second-person lyric narrative, um, affirming the significance of the letter as a site of private publication. In Son, Lermotov calls to mind the mountainous topography of Dagestan in order to allegorize it as an in-between space of poetic ambiguity within which the lyrical subject, dying but not dying, offers a second fictional plane. Um, but through the motifs of erotic love and tight metrical and rhythmic patternings, obfuscates this turn. Against the epic or the sentimentalist novels, Lermontov's novel crafts an idiom that makes affect and even the disdain for emotionality an object of narrative gaze. The Caucasus mountains, which rise up like an amphitheatre, enclose um, the narrative subjects of the novel and the protagonists in this web of misconnections, chance encounters and fleeting highs, such that the implied reader might forget that this is a fictional world. And the generic boundaries thus between poetry and prose are much less clear-cut beyond their length and sound patterning. Common to all of the texts that we've been thinking about is a romantically ironic intonation that always points back to the authorial subject. So um, to kind of conclude what I uh, have been talking about, um, I would say that The Prisoner of the Caucasus and A Hero of Our Time do deserve to be read on their own terms, but also as um, artifacts of a very um, monumentous point for Russian history. This is probably the first time that um, we get an ironic stance towards Russian imperialism in a highbrow, um, now very widely circulated group of texts, but even at the time, extremely influential texts. So even this um, parodying or ironizing of uh, the Russian nobleman who wishes to enter into a different kind of community that he sees as savage, where he can um, have some kind of erotic relationship with its women, where he can find a kind of peace from... Um, the hubbub of the cities. This is all exposed as an impossible, an impossible dream and an impossible endeavor, and it's also then tracked to 
the um, process of literary creation in general. And uh, what I think, I don't think either of these texts are nihilistic. Um, Obviously, in terms of the history of ideas, it would be a little early for them to be nihilistic proper. But I don't even think that that's what um, Lermontov and Pushkin are claiming. I think that they have these very different um, values which they point out in the dedication, epilogue and forward, which is that it, it's kind of an art for art's sake um, motivation. What brings a writer joy? What um, allows him to refract his own experience of uh, of his generation and uh, how he's received not by the press but rather by um, those whom he esteems in a kind of uh, fraternity of um, other writers and thinkers. That is what counts. So um, I hope that has been interesting. We will be moving on to um, the debates of the 1840s through to the 1860s. So stay tuned. And thank you for getting this far. Um, you should have put it on double speed, honestly. I'll see you next time. Bis dann,